0: Alright, Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. I am your host, retired fleet bashy Paul Kingsbury, and it is time again to pull your leadership cutlass from your scabbard and get up close and personal with another guest to sharpen our leadership and management skills so we can hopefully deliver results and not excuses and make a positive difference in our teams. Today, I'm excited to be joined by executive leader, trainer, consultant, and recruiter, and he's also a Navy veteran. Retired Master Chief Chris Engels. And I first met Chris. I think it was baked. I'm think I'm dating. It was baked back in the late 1990s aboard USS Enterprise. And I know you're going to enjoy his perspective and his personality and his attitude. Chris is a high energy executive with over 32 years of international, federal, and state leadership experience, as well as consulting experience and effectively leading in large organizations. So he served in the Navy in the aviation ordinance field and as a command mass chief, culminating with the selection as the force mass chief for Commander Naval Installations Command, where he helped shape the strategic direction, welfare, and training of 60,000 employees in the delivery of 122 product lines across 70 bases worldwide. Chris is a strategic thinker, innovator, and a motivated leader who's energized by building winning organizations that return value to their customers and employees. So, Chris, it's great to catch up with you again, and welcome to the Cutlass
1: Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Paul. I look very forward to it. Awesome. So, by
0: the way, happy birthday. Navy is celebrating its 246th birthday. You don't look a day over
1: 245. Absolutely great. Go Navy. Awesome.
0: Uh, And I also want to pause a minute real fast and reflect on the anniversary of the bombing of USS Cole, which happened on October 12th of 2000. I had the honor of hosting retired Command Master Chief James Parlier on the Cutlass Podcast back in 2019, that one is episode three, so I encourage you to check it out and his leadership experiences on that uh, horrible day back in two thousand. So, all right, Chris, you ready to jump into this? I'm waiting on you, Paul. Let's go. All right, I want to get your perspective because once you're retired, you got into you know I followed you a little bit, and then you worked in a high reliability consulting arena for a while now. So, I want to know uh, what's that been like, and what have you learned on that civilian side in high reliability operations.
1: Well, again, Paul, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, One thing I definitely learned is after retiring from the Navy, I went into the oil and gas business for almost three years, working offshore oil and gas, primarily over in Europe. And the oil and gas world itself has embraced HRO, or high reliability organizations. They had to. I mean, think about it. No one wanted to be BP like down in the Gulf. Yeah. So what happened was lots of lessons learned, lots of money. Money is a great motivator for people at times to turn around and fix things, never mind all the negative press. So... Oil and gas world has a very, very good understanding and truly embraced HRO to the principles. They do it every day. And I did that again for almost three years and I switched over to Coors Leadership Capital where I'm now Director of Leader, Leadership and Training. So now we deal in the healthcare system. Uh, our founder, Cheryl Coors, is actually a retired nurse. So she's great. So she was able to take what she knows from the healthcare side and we were able to take it from our military side and merge the two together. So we get a better understanding. And then, of course, COVID came about. So it gave us the opportunity to go and assess different hospitals to see where they're at to help them with their organization for sustainment. Oh, as you know, being out in the Navy itself, on a ship, in a squadron, anything that's underway, you're going to be out there six, seven, eight, nine, ten months at a time. And it's go, go, go every day. There is no day off at sea. So how in the world do you enable a hospital to keep up that pace every day? So we went back to what we were taught in the Navy, sustain, you know, sustained combat operations. You got to work them. You got to feed them. You got to sleep them. And many people are like, well, wait a minute. That works in the military, but not in the civilian world. Well, I disagree. It absolutely does. Again, oil and gas proves it. They work a shift. They work a 12-hour shift. Every day is a Monday. But everyone's trained in everything. So the big wheel keeps turning around the clock. But when that time is over, the other person comes on. Guess what? The first group gets off. They get something to eat. They get some more. And so, you know, they're going to sit there going to sleep, get the rest. is They make them get sleep. So that way they come in fresh, energetic, ready to go. Because, again, you can't have a down day and healthcare. is even magnified because now you're dealing with the people element. So if someone's dealing with your loved one, someone near and dear to you, you want to make sure that person is as sharp as possible every single moment that they're with your family member. And so that's what we sit there and try to teach them. And impart to them is the lessons learned from combat experiences, from the military as a whole, and how they can keep the COVID fight going for as long as it takes.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've been seeing some articles, reading some articles, seeing some news stories on the stress that's on the healthcare industry. I think particularly nurses, not that doctors aren't stressed as well, but what are some of the more specific impacts that you're seeing on those healthcare teams?
1: Number one is burnout. I mean, you can watch it on the news and read it in the newspaper. There are thousands upon thousands of nurses who have either taken early retirement, simply moved on to a different career path due to either burnout, family issues, combination of everything, management as a whole, not being prepared for it. Cause again, COVID was quite unexpected. And there was a uh, article we wrote concerning hospitals and urban hospitals. It's, it's unfortunate that the civilian hospitals don't have the technical knowledge and or the experience the military has had over the last 20 years of being in Afghanistan and also dealing with Iraq because all those lessons learned on the medical front from that emergency medicine and how to keep it going would pay paid them great dividends. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all, not all hospitals have fallen into this category. Right. But many have. So the greater lessons learned are, Management has to learn and they have learned to a point to work their people, make them go home, bring in more people, do all the right things so they can keep the big fight going. But the greatest lesson learned is a lot of people have retired early. A lot of people have said have had enough and uh, it's really, really taking its toll on healthcare system. So
0: many of the same challenges, as you know, on active duty came down to several things it's not just the deployment length manning levels you know the number of people you actually have qualified to do the job right and do it effectively and it it gets down to our experiences we had with fatigue management so those are the kind of things uh is the healthcare industry struggling with that now too retention is issue and that just puts more workload frankly on the force that's out there now and coupled with this higher op tempo, i take it that's what's driving it
1: absolutely right i mean Straight up, the fact is you have a tremendous amount of work going on. You have a limited, you have a very well-educated workforce here. Nurses are very well-educated. They're very dedicated to what they do. But like any other human being, they get tired. They have family lives. They have things going on. So what's happening is fatigue sets in, and when fatigue sets in, now we have problems. We have the physical aspect. We have the psychological aspect. We have the family aspect. And when you combine them all, It's a path that goes to a bad place. And again, I mean, right now, most hospitals are running shortages. And if you were to Google it, look around, you'll see we are thousands and thousands of nurses short across the country. And one part of the healthcare industry that is booming right now is if you're a traveling nurse, and there are many traveling nurses. These are people that take a short term contract, 90, 180 day contract, go work at a hospital. And nurses right now find themselves, I mean, in quite a challenge between COVID vaccine mandates, family issues. Fatigue is the big one, Okay. There's no question about it.
0: So if you're leading and you're now consulting and advising these executives and hospital leadership teams, this really gets into risk management, right? You've got – this is a hazard, right? This fatigue thing. So as you advise these healthcare leadership teams, what insight and guidance are you offering them on managing team resilience and
1: fatigue so, okay, a couple of things. If you go back to the basics of HRO, you know, the, there's those five pillars, right? Preoccupation with failures and its cause. We left this to simplifying interpretations, sensitivity, operations, commitment to resilience, and deference to expertise. And we teach this all the time. Again, I used to be an aviation man before that. I was actually a nuclear weaponsman. So one thing I understand is following the rules. As we sit there and we're going around different hospitals and we're teaching the upper management, CEOs, CNOs, chief medical officers, those people, we try to get them to look at, as a term, as a holistic view. Let's go up to 80,000 feet and look at the entire picture, not just down here, but up here. Okay. And as you know, as well as I do, if you're on a large organization, whether it's a fleet, I had an aircraft carrier, whatever it is, it's empowering your people to do the right thing, train them correctly, and so when you have people walking around, what's the most important thing, Paul? We used to always tell people, walk around, ask the people, how are you doing today? Yeah. Observe the people, how are they looking, how are they acting? You have to truly empower your people to make decisions for you. And guess what? Sometimes you have to be the adult in a room to tell the person, hey, I need you to go home. Well, I don't want to go home. I understand that. I need you to go home today because you need some sleep. You need to go see your family. Those are what we sit there and teach people. There's a lot more into the process and it would take too long to go through all this, but that's just like the eighty thousand foot view ball.
0: Okay. So what's been your experience? What's the focus of the leadership on our time in active duty? I think we've done a pretty good job in the military, at least with leadership and management development. You know, we have that command triad concept of having a commanding officer, an executive officer, and a command mass chief, and among the three of them Pulsing health of the force is always a big deal, and that's something you and i did and then that translates all the way up, whether it's you know a four star admiral, you know a deputy commander and a fleet or force mass chief and there's a lot of value add from that. What's the focus or where's the misfocus come from, or where's the pressure on these leaders come from? Is it fiscal like pressure to turn profit? What's been your experience with that?
1: First of all, many hospitals in this country, the majority of them are actually non profit okay. You know, the remainder, obviously, is profit hospital. Of course, money is always involved, no matter whether it's profit or non-profit, because you have to be able to exist. And then we have what's known as critical access hospitals. These are the ones primarily out in your small rural areas. These are typically 25-bed hospitals. They're filling the biggest pinch of all because, again, shortages. People here, there. And, of course, when you get into large urban areas, as you saw during when COVID was driving very, very hard, you know, on television all the time, people being overworked. So what? The primary thing we teach people, Paul, we ask them to do is get out, walk around, see your people. Go back up again to eighty thousand feet. Look down. What do you see? Don't just plan about today and tomorrow's schedule. Look out for a month down the road schedule. Who needs some time off? How many people do we have? Who's talking about retiring early? Where can I find that next person that highly qualified, motivated nurse or doctor? Or and please and keep in mind, it's not just nurses and doctors. Also, Paul. Okay. It's also like in CNIC, it, it's also infrastructure people. It's all the people that take care of your maintenance to bring in all your supplies, the whole logistical aspect. The holistic view needs to be taken a hard look at, and that is what enables leadership to make a good decision. If, they're, if they have tunnel vision on one thing, which is strictly a nurse, I got that. That's one very, very part, very, very important part. But if all the pieces are not in alignment, the big machine will stop. It. And that's one of the biggest fears they have is, people, again, are retiring early, running health problems themselves, or just said, I'm burned out. I've had enough.
0: These leadership teams you're working with, you explained to me, like when we discussed this over lunch, these aren't necessarily doctors. These are executives that are, are focused on leading the healthcare industry per se. Is that right?
1: Right. It's actually a combination of both. It's the clinical side, which could be a doctor and a nurse, but also the CEO and your chief executive officers, chief nursing officers, chief medical officers, chief financial officers. Because they're the ones looking either at a hospital as a whole or entire hospital system, and a hospital system could be anywhere from two hospitals to fifteen to seventeen hospitals. And so, a hospital is much like a command in the military. You know, as a it has its own CO, so to speak, its own XO, and then you take all those squadrons put them all together. They fall under a wing or a desron commander, those type of things. And so, if you're at a system level, you know you're looking at a multi-billion-dollar enterprise here. And your number one thing is to make sure there's no patient harm. Every patient is given the best possible care at every opportunity. And so if you start from there and walk that dog backwards, you know what you need to look at managing your money, your time, and your people. And again, again, Paul, you and I both know people come and people go, but the process is steady in there. And so when they onboard that no organization, if they're onboarded correctly, if that motivation of that command or that hospital can be put into that new person, come on board, you're going to be successful. If not, you're going to struggle. And again, you can see some hospitals out there struggling, and that's part of it may be money, but a lot of it is about management and attitude.
0: Okay. And what's your assessment? What's been the level of disconnect that you see where I take it, is there a part where you're like, hey, let's go walk around and go talk to some people on what we would call the deck plate rate, doing the daily deed? What's the level of disconnect there, and what's the reaction once they get down and have those kind of engagements?
1: Without a doubt, there was one hospital I went to, and it was great. We're walking around doing an assessment for them. And everywhere you walk, they had no idea who we were. We're just some other people in, in their hospital. Everyone's like, good morning. How you doing? Hey, hey, welcome. And how you doing? Good morning. Good morning. They must have said it 50 times we we'll walk down this, these hallways right. over two hours. It's like, okay. Then you go to flip side. I've been to a place where we walk around. Nobody's got their head down, staring down at the floor, looking at a piece of paper, or just mumbling as they walk by. And you, and you think to yourself as a leader, Paul. And again, you all well know this. You're walking around a command or a place. You can see, wow, you're saying good morning. They're saying good morning. Somebody's got a smile on the face, even on your worst day. Right? It comes down to putting on that face, being a positive person, and driving to a solution. And so, what I find is a lot of this is leadership. It's all it's the leadership itself. Many of them are very, very good at the financial aspect, management aspect of the finances and the people. But when it comes to actually running a crew or being that person who has to be the face of the organization and who can honestly look someone from the janitorial staff, the food service staff, the clinical side in the face, tell them the truth of what's going on, how we're going to get there, why we need to get there. Not only truly believe it themselves, babe, but be able to impart that into the person why it's so important that their job is done correctly. Because, I mean, again, think about it. If the power's off, the water's off, the lights are off, all these things don't work. I mean, it's, it's much, more than, much like an aircraft carrier, right? I used to always see people come off. When I go pick them off off the cod, they'd always like, oh, you know, it looks great. The jet going up the front end is beautiful, right? And yeah. it's true. But then 24 hours later, when they were leaving, they come up and said, hey, Master Chief, wow, now I understand. You have people making 400,000 gallons of fresh water, people doing the wash, people cooking 18,000 meals a day. we got logistics going on. All these other things, just so that one thing can happen, hospital's the same way. Hospital works as a unit, just so that the doctors and nurses can give that patient the best health care possible. Without everyone else, it just doesn't
0: work, Paul. Well. The Cutlass Podcast will return in a moment. Are you an aspiring or newly selected petty officer? Perhaps you are a seasoned chief and you want to reflect on the state of your leadership and management skills. Or maybe you're a civilian looking to learn more about how U.S. Navy leaders make the Navy run. If so, there's a guide for you. The Chief Petty Officers and Petty Officers Guides both provide unique insights into topics such as the ones discussed in this podcast, which enable enlisted leaders from Petty Officer 3rd Class through Mass Chief and other leaders to achieve their objectives while positively influencing their sailors, peers, and leadership. Both guides are essential and insightful reading for enlisted leaders of any experience level, those who are inspired to advance to Chief Petty Officer or Petty Officer, or anyone looking to reflect on the state of their leadership and management skills. Get your copy of Either or Both today at www.cutlessleadership.com, www.usni.org backslash books, or online at your bookstore of choice. Then read and reflect and take what you learn to become and remain a sturdy, versatile, and credible leader and manager who makes a positive difference in your teams. Now back to the Cutlass podcast. I've discussed that on other podcasts and it sounds so simple times. That secret sauce of just being able to connect people's day-to-day work with value to the organization is so huge uh, in shaping organizational attitude. There's a bunch that other goes in there. You know, the communication effectiveness, the frequency, how well you align core values of the organization to individual day-to-day behaviors, those things take work over time. But um, just getting around and be able to sense these things and then adjust and get that feedback is huge. So, all right, let's switch gears real fast. So you mentioned this, the five pillars of HROs. I did an episode, you know, Frank Gardner, he's a retired master. If you guys um, spent some time up in DC together. So we did an episode on preventing, I, I labeled it preventing catastrophe during dangerous situations Frank was a nuke. I was a former nuke. You've been, you know, dealt with nuclear weapons and high reliability stuff on active duty. So what's your perspective and advice on these? And for some of the listeners that don't know that term HRO, what a high reliability operation is, can you give us a 101 on that and the five pillars from your perspective?
1: Absolutely. Right. So preoccupation with failure and causes pillar number one. So now we're talking about near misses and things like this. We want to know what happened not like well that was pretty close we're going to be okay nope let's stop right there something happened let's figure it out through a process of what really happened let's dig in figure it out so why because we want to know everyone should want to know why we failed, right so that's number one so let's figure out why it happened then we go back and now we teach everyone Then we have reluctance to simplify interpretations again as a simple solution yeah well there's an easy way we can do this we can go in and just think, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, we'll send you through a couple of classes and we'll send you over here and spend a couple of hours over here. Nope, we don't want to do that. We want to send you to this type of professional, then this type of professional. That way we can impart this and this to you so we can teach you the true process, not the summary version. We want you to learn the, the detailed version of it. Then we have sensitivity operations. What's going on? Not just this part here, but the but everything aggregated here. Okay, I'm doing my part, so I support this part, which in turn supports this part. A person may be able to sit there and say, also leadership around them who's sensitive to what's going on for them, hey, I'm having a bad day. Can that person's supervisor help them out? It's all about what's going on around you at that moment. Commitment to resilience. That's the big thing in healthcare is resilience. Getting back up, dusting yourself off, and that's the greater picture. That's pillar number four in HRO. Taking the time to say, we need to get back up. And how are we going to get back up? Because we support each other. We believe in our processes and we know it works. That's commitment to resilience. And last but not least, deference to our expertise. And I have a class example. Of this one first off, it means whoever's doing that job at the moment, who is that person in that moment who's most qualified at that time, regardless of their rank, position, however you want to say it, and that person is the person on the scene making the call, support them. But they're only going to be there if you train them and and, and okayed them to be there. In a classic military example of this, I was on a ship. We were up in the uh, oil platforms off of Iraq. We had to go to a meeting in Um Khazar up you free to the river. We're going up the river. It's a little rib boat. But a couple hours later, we get there. As soon as we get off the boat, we go up this little dock. We're walking up the dock. Eight, nine seconds later, boom, boom. At a distance, a couple mortar rounds hit. My captain, who's an 06 in the Navy, United States captain, great guy, knew everything in the world about our missile cruiser, knew it all. Turned right around to Marine Corps Corporal. Hi, right, Corporal, you're in charge. What the hell are we going to do? As the classic example of furnish the expertise because my commanding officer knew everything about fighting that ship. He could do it all, and he was a phenomenal captain. But when it came to ground tactics, that was not his thing. That was that Marine Corps Corporal's gig. That was his thing. He was professional enough and humble enough say you're in charge, what the hell are we gonna do? That's the five pillars, Paul.
0: Okay. Those resonate with me and they parallel what we grew up with under Naval Nuclear Power Program, you know, things like questioning attitude, formal communications, integrity, level of knowledge. A little different, but I could nest those definitely under there. So uh thanks for offering that. All right, so let's go, you know, we've seen you you've identified problem or you identified cultural issue. There's obviously a desire on leadership teams that you engage with to make things better. But what kind of cultural barriers or other barriers do you come across uh, that prevent achieving progress in this area? And then how do you work with those teams to shape those?
1: Well, with that, number one is all of a sudden you're an outsider and and you're not a healthcare provider yourself, which is true. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. Right. But I I understand organizations run, whether they're large or small where and i've been in various organizations so sometimes what the resistance you're into is when you have someone whether it's a doctor or a nurse or another professional and it's the way they've been taught is their egos it's the organization's ego and you know quite honestly no one would no one wants their own stuff put in the street no one wants to be put out there so first thing you have to do is sit there and tell people okay your leadership brought us in to talk to you about these issues about how we can help all of ourselves get better and reduce the chance of doing harm to a patient. Cause again, we're all here for one thing, reduce harm to a patient, no harm to a patient is what everyone wants. So right. it's getting these people to relax, to understand what you tell them that you're not sitting there trying to sell them a product. Cause you're not, you're just showing them a different way not to do their job. Cause again, I'm not a clinical person, right? I want them to step back and just take time to say, okay, Wow, this makes sense. So, example, in the oil and gas world, before you start a procedure up on the deck, there was, there was a toolbox talk. Everybody gets together. We talk about what's going on. We're getting ready to do this drilling operation or whatever this procedure is, big or small. They have a toolbox talk for everything. Everyone responsible was on that scene at the same time. Then we all talk about it. And the driller, who's the person running the crew, talks about what's going on. Then he goes back and asks everyone an open the question. It's not yes, no, up, down, port, starboard. It's why do you think, hey, what is your part? What are you going to do if this happens? We ask all those questions, so we're all involved. That's the biggest thing of all is getting them to understand we're here and not to tell you how to do the job, but just how to look at it differently. So we can re- have a successful event and repeat that successful event every day. You know, we want to work the same way every day, the equipment, same thing with the people. And we're training to different environments here. So in case something does happen, we can handle it all.
0: Yeah, I think those briefs, whatever you want to call them, huddles, toolbox talks, we did all those. Those are important. That's where you bring in that questioning attitude, right? So we want to replicate two procedure, right? Usually there's procedures that govern these things, but then things change, right? So that's that opportunity to pause and go, okay, what's different today? What could go wrong? That's that questioning attitude that comes in. And then just realizing and get people to, I think, pause and just re and consider and reflect on and remember the Negative outcomes that could occur, right? In the healthcare industry, that could be, you know, that's someone's life. That's, I've heard of limbs getting the wrong limb getting taken off and a whole bunch of things. So Mm -hmm. wrong procedures getting done on the wrong patients. No one wants that to come. So I think that's important. And from my experience, this translates into any kind of field, right? That kind of fundamental thing of huddling your team. It may not be a high reliability operation. It might just, for a group of teachers with a principal kicking off the new school year or kicking off a new semester or just starting a new week, this battle rhythm of meeting with the team, informing them what's going on, soliciting what could go wrong or, hey, what needs to adjust, it's a great management tool, and that's really what management by walking around is. So, How have you been able to level, leverage your military experience to be an effective and consultant in all of these industries? What do you see that's similar? What do you see
1: that's different, and how have you been able to bridge that gap? Well, several things. Uh, being the most junior person in an organization when you first get to a new command in Navy, Speak of which, this is actually my 40 years ago this month, I reported to my first ship, believe it or not, pre-commissioned unit Carl Vinson. So, wow, it's 40 years. I'm getting old. That's crazy, right? So, that is crazy. When you report to a place as the most junior person possible, you check in. You're depending upon your leadership, your supervisors, to show you the ropes, what's going on. So, it's the same basic principle. Now, as you move up through ranks, positions, you learn, you grow, you succeed, you fail. You have good leaders, bad leaders, but sometimes we learn even more from bad leaders than we do good leaders. We learn what not to do. All of a sudden you find yourself as one of those, mo- as one of the most senior people. So that leadership by walking around Paul, as you spoke about, there is no substitute for that, right? There's none. So I try to impart that number one to leadership and not just the most senior person. But many people. So in oil and gas world, it's extremely prevalent. They walk around; they're always looking around, see what's right, what's not right. In hospitals, it's the same way. It's getting them to understand whether you're a doctor, a nurse. If you're running a crew of nurses or a crew of doctors, if you're if you're running the ER, you just by being there, your attitude, your physical presence that are around you states volumes. So we talk to people about that, and then. When you explain to people your own experiences in the military, starting from down as a junior person, working your way up, and then seeing how you went through this litany, so to speak, of a squadron, a cruiser, carrier, based, and all the bases, all of a sudden now you've got a $13 billion budget, 60,000 people, 72 bases are like, okay. So he does have a slight idea about how you know, a building or a hospital runs. And absolutely, right? So once you can get the people to understand that I'm not here to tell you how you do your job, I'm here to show you maybe a different way to look at your job, then they usually drop the shields on you and then you get a chance to go in and talk to them as a human being. Awesome.
0: Another thing. So we talk a lot about leadership. I'm a big fan of, hey, there's a management process going on with this too, right? So the healthcare industry is managing, right? They're planning things, they're organizing resources, they're directing the execution of those resources, and then they're hopefully engaging in the controlling function, which is the follow-up. Is plan on track? Is it behind? Do I need a new plan? That kind of thinking. I did an episode with Fleemashi Jim Honey, episode 23, if they want to check that out. But this controlling function of management is where we're at. So what's been your experience with how much do you advise on – do you get into the management piece and being a good manager as well? Because I do think managerial functions and leadership influence – are different. They blend together, but I think sometimes people they don't give enough attention to their management skills and the skills needed to be a good manager. What's your been your experience there?
1: Number one, Paul, I think you're absolutely right. Leadership management are most different. No question about it. But at times they do blend together. So when you're dealing with the management side, these are people that are saying, okay, I need to take two steps back because I how about this, right? Now I cannot walk in to a place and say okay i'm not a doctor yet i'm, I'm about to be in charge and i can figure this out on my own." no the first person a smart leader will walk into a place and say okay, i don't know how to do this myself but i know how to look around figure out who's who in the zoo so i'll take one smart person put them on my left side or the port side i'll take another smart person put them on my right side my starboard side and i can lead us down the other brick road to me it has leadership period now management side take two steps back and look around Survey the kingdom. Okay, what people do I have here? Who do I have? This person, this person, this person, this person. These people who I think I believe, I know, are more than capable of handling these particular particular positions. And here's what I see coming downstream. So you being smart enough to place the correct people at the right time to organize, lead, and manage those people. It's managing your assets, right? It's like if you're looking at a chessboard, you have be smart enough to use the pawns up correctly, right? Now, yeah. I'm not talking, calling people pawns, of course, right? But it's managing what you have here. Because there's only so much play-doh inside the cup ball, and this is all the play-doh you have. There's going to be no more play-doh. Right. So how do I use this play-doh most effectively to get the most out of it? And that's how I look at management, right? It's being smart enough, thinking far enough ahead to use your assets as well as you possibly can.
0: Yep. I like that. And then the leadership is humanizing those aspects. Absolutely. I you know. So concur, absolutely. Cool. Let you have the last word here. Any last thoughts? Any, oh, by the way, things you remember or foot stomp, you know, concepts you want to do?
1: Yeah, just uh, number one, there isn't a substitute, ladies and gentlemen, for leadership by walking around. Remember another one. You get what you inspect, and not what you expect. I've been asked many times what I what I think the difference is between a good leader, a great leader, or a great captain, or a good captain. And for me, it came down a couple of basic things. A good leader or a good captain, they get exactly what they need out of their people. Jobs getting done. We're all going down. Things are great. But the great leaders, the great captains, he or she, they get what they want out of their people, which is the belief the to buy into their system to know that I trust you. You trust me. I'm going to look out for you and you're going to look out for me. And then that's when all the great things begin to happen. That's when you're going down the yellow brick road. And guess what? These people will give you 100% every day because they believe in you, because they know that you believe in them and that you support them. And the leadership roles Paul, and you know this as well as I do. There's times when a person asks for something, they want some time off, they want to go to a program, they want to do something. And sometimes when paperwork's coming up, it's very, very easy to say no, because no requires no thought process on your behalf. It's an easy one. Yeah. No, I don't figure anything out. I check no, move along, and that's no, and I get to move on to other things. But if you say yes to someone, if you give them an opportunity to do it, if it's possible, that requires you to get up off your behind and make a decision, figure out how you can possibly sit and try to help that person out. Not everything's going to be yes, some things need to be no. But I'm much more of a yes person than a no person. So that positivity—I mean, my wife calls me like a little misoptimistic here because right? I have to, because otherwise I would have never got through 32 years and navy and a whole ton of ships. I mean, 20 years, one month, and six days of my life on ships. The only way to get through those kind of things is being resilient, is being positive, and having the right attitude. Otherwise, you wind up being a very irritable old man. And I have no desire to be a first ball. So please, people, walk around, smile, have a little fun at work. If you're having a bad day go over to the wall, break that little case, break it down emergency smile, jam it in your mouth and walk around and smile. Guess what? It spreads. All
0: right. Awesome. Listeners have heard me say it over and again, this importance of having competence and character. And that piece you just talked about is strong on the personal power character side. Just being an authentic person who has a good attitude and cares about people and tries to get to yes. That's solid advice. And when you get that competence and you get that character and it's authentic and it's strong in both those. You get credibility. With credibility comes trust and with trust comes in buy-in. And then like you said, your people will go through thick and thin to get things done that they need to get done. Appreciate those insights. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up. Our guest today, again, has been Chris Engels. He's an executive leader, trainer, consultant, recruiter, and Navy veteran. Chris, thanks again for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me on the Cutlass Podcast and share these insights.
1: Paul, again, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I look forward to getting a chance to do this again in the future. And uh, again, happy birthday, Navy, 246. Awesome.
0: All right, to our listeners, thanks again for listening to an episode of the Cutlass Podcast. Please provide me feedback or suggest topics for future episodes and email me at cutlassleadership at gmail.com. And make sure to subscribe to the Cutlass Podcast on your favorite podcast channel. Like it, share it, comment so you can help me get this content out and about. And take some time to check out my website at www.cutlassleadership.com. I'm Paul Kingsbury. As always, work hard to keep that leadership cutlass sharp, reflect, improve, and take what you learn to become a sturdy, versatile, incredible leader who makes a positive difference in your personal and professional life.